0: On October twenty-second, nineteen 1962, President John F. Kennedy broadcast a special message to the nation from his office in the White House. Here is President Kennedy as he delivered that message bearing on recent events in Cuba. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance Of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island.
1: That was President John F. Kennedy giving what was perhaps the most harrowing speech in American history. As Kennedy spelled out, the U.S. government had collected intelligence that the Soviets were installing on Cuba, ballistic missiles capable of carrying nuclear warheads that could target cities throughout the United States, weapons, he said, of sudden mass destruction. For more than a half century, there was a common understanding of how the U.S. government knew about this, from U-2 spy planes flying over Cuba and taking photographs of the missile sites. But now new evidence has emerged that there was a whole other piece to the story, spelled out in a fascinating new piece of investigative journalism. It turns out that there was a CIA officer, unknown to the history books, named Tom Hewitt, who was placing covert agents on the Cuban island as part of Operation Cobra, a secret CIA plan to overthrow the regime of Fidel Castro. And it turns out it was Tom Hewitt's Cobra agents who first identified those missile sites and tipped off the CIA to the weapons buildup, not the U-2 spy planes. How did we not know this before? And why are we just learning about it now? Especially relevant questions at a moment the U.S. government is, once again, seeking to overthrow a government in South America. We'll discuss with the journalist who pieced the story together, our Yahoo News colleague, national security correspondent Sean Naylor, on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook.
0: I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not.
2: I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no
1: lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Izagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo
2: News. And I'm Dan Kleidman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, Sean, welcome to Buried Treasure. It
0: is great to be here.
2: You did a rare thing in this extraordinary uh, piece that just went up on Yahoo News. You managed to break news on one of the most scrutinized and crucial events in modern U.S. history. Tell us quickly how Tom Hewitt and his band of agents pulled this off. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about how you got onto this story in the first place.
0: So Tom Hewitt was a case officer in the Miami station of the CIA, which in the early 1960s was the largest station that the CIA had in the world, with hundreds of employees basically running operations into Cuba, analyzing what was going on in Cuba and so forth as Castro's grip on power tightened and as Cuba became increasingly communist. Tom Hewitt ran a small team of agents initially into Western Cuba. And we describe in in the story uh, how they infiltrated Cuba and he had trained particularly his principal agent, a man called Esteban Marquez Novo, who was a a former Cuban military member, in the sort of top-level clandestine tradecraft. And he'd given him about a six to eight-month training course in how to do that, all of that sort of stuff. And after infiltrating the team, it turned out that Marquez Novo was an absolute natural at this. And he was able to build up a network inside of Western Cuba that eventually some estimates included as many as a hundred sort of members. And what was uh,
2: his mission when he went in? Because it wasn't to discover nuclear missiles. No, no.
0: His mission his mission was was essentially twofold. It was to set up a network That could be used, and and I don't think they ever anticipated it was going to grow as large as it did, but to set up a network that could be used primarily to gather intelligence and potentially to conduct sort of resistance operations, actual sort of covert attacks, that sort of thing. So,
1: in effect, they were sleeper agents, Right? I mean, they were there. They weren't conducting operations per se. There wasn't sabotage going on. They weren't blowing up railroad tracks or buildings. Uh, They were there to sort of be sleeper agents to await for an order from, presumably from Tom Hewitt, to begin military resistance to the Castro regime.
0: Yeah. The only reason I, I wouldn't use the phrase sleeper agent is they were operational. The operations that they were conducting were intelligence gathering operations. Well, that that is what a sleeper agent
1: does, isn't it? I mean, it collects intelligence.
0: I tend to think of a sleeper agent as somebody who's just laying low and waiting for the green light, but you may be right. I'm thinking of the illegals, you know,
1: that the Russians had placed in uh, in the United States. But they they actually
0: were not, not to get
2: on a tangent here, but they actually, I mean, (laughs) they were here for 10 years or something, Mm -hmm. and then they were supposed to be released or operationalized. So, Sean, one of the things that's important here is to set the context and This all was occurring in the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs, which was probably the biggest humiliation of John F. Kennedy. It was a disastrous operation. And so there was reticence and some kind of risk averseness to these kinds of operations. So one of the challenges that Tom Hewitt had was
0: to actually get permission to do this, correct? Yes. The Kennedy administration was okay with... Sending agents in, but you were not allowed to parachute agents in. They had to go in by sea. And Hewitt sat down with his principal agent, Esteban Marquez Novo, and figured out where Marquez Novo would be most comfortable sort of infiltrating. And that was on the sort of the southwestern coast of Cuba which obviously is much harder to get to from Florida than the northern coast of Cuba. And together with another case officer in the paramilitary uh, side of of the station called Rudy Enders, who went on to run the CIA's entire special operations group later in in his career, they came up with a plan that involved taking a World War II-era landing craft, which was the only ship that they knew that they had access to that had the range required to get all the way around the western tip of Cuba. But then towing behind it a sort of, at the time, high-end, cutting-edge, wooden sort of sport craft called a Forrest Johnson Prowler, which had a very low draft because the route that they needed to take was through a, some shallows that you needed a draft of five feet or less in your ship. So the sort of World War II-era craft, the landing craft craft, took them all the way around the western edge of Cuba then stopped a smaller crew then with the two agents got in the uh, the Forrest Johnson prowler and that went up to about a mile off the coast in the middle of the night on March 11th 1962 and then they got in a canoe a fiberglass canoe and paddled paddled into the mouth of the San Diego River and a couple of miles up the river before beaching the canoe, burying it, or at least sinking it, rather, so that uh, it could be used again, it could be found and used again, burying uh, a bunch of their supplies, and then walking off into the night.
1: So, Sean, so how do these agents discover the missile sites, and at what point?
0: They discovered the missile sites because the network was so extensive, and If you were around in Western Cuba and with a mission to keep your eyes open as to what the Cuban military was doing and what the Soviet military was doing, it was hard, first of all, not to realize that something was going on because thousands of Soviet forces were showing up and building bases. And the agents in particular spotted that there was an area of Pinar del Rio province, which is the westernmost province in Cuba, that was roughly shaped like a trapezoid, as it became known, in which a lot of secret stuff was going on to include work on missile sites. And that was the report that they sent back that was used to target the U-2 flights.
2: A couple of kind of ironies before we get to that mm. aha moment. One is that there were reports coming in mm. from agents on the ground speculating mm. about missiles being mm. put in, ballistic missiles being yeah. put in. But they were
0: being discounted routinely by Langley, correct? That's correct. The, sort of, the CIA's analysts, along with their peers in most of the rest of the US government, were sure that the Soviets would not risk putting nuclear missiles in Cuba, and so tended to discount reports to the contrary. So one of my
2: favorite details in this story is that the one man at the CIA <laughs> who actually put credence in these stories was the CIA director himself, John McCone. But when these some of their reports were coming in, he was on his honeymoon yeah. with his new wife in
1: Paris, correct?
0: That's right, in France, yeah. And well, he, he, well and,
1: and the detail that leapt out at me at that is he was there for several weeks. So the the CIA director goes off to (laughs) Paris on his honeymoon for several weeks in the middle of the Cold War? I mean, that seems like a pretty long honeymoon. It
0: it was. Now, to be fair to John McCone, the, the CIA director, he did take a small communications team with him. And in fact, on
1: his honeymoon. Yes, that sounds romantic. Well, he was he
0: was sending back so many uh, messages and cables to CIA headquarters that one wag there said he he wasn't sure if the director understood what he was supposed to be doing on a honeymoon.
1: (laughs) How did his wife feel? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Well,
2: first of all, I just want to say that anytime you want to say, wag on this show, you're permitted to do that. That's <laughs> okay. like, we should bring that back that term <laughs> okay. for uh, skullduggery and buried, and particularly for buried treasure. But the other irony, given the fact that eventually it was with the U-2 spy plane over all these years that was getting the credit for actually spotting these uh, missiles, mm. is that we had cut back on the use of U-2 spy planes. And in fact, we were not flying them over Western Cuba at all. Explain that. Yes.
0: So one of the things that the Soviets did Initially, as part of this buildup that eventually led to them trying to install ballistic missiles on Cuba, was it put in SA-2 anti-aircraft missiles. That's the same sort of uh, missile that had shot down U-2 over the Soviet Union that Gary Powers was, was flying. And they did this quite clearly to intimidate the United States into not flying U-2s over Cuba so that the n- nuclear buildup could be hidden. And that worked to a degree, in the fact that for several weeks, the U-2s were not flying over Western Cuba at the exact time that the Soviets were putting the missiles Okay, so
1: when does Tom Hewitt get the first report that there's a missile buildup in Cuba?
0: We don't know that. The CIA was not able to provide me with reports that they could specifically say, this came from Tom Hewitt's agents. There was no sort of smoking gun reports if you like where you could see an agent that they confirmed. I was thought competent. there is a
1: report you quote from in yeah, piece. There's a
0: there's a, the one that there's a report that we quote from that we don't ascribe to a Hewitt agent because we just know that it's from an agent in Cuba. There's another report, the report on the trapezoid area area that came in I believe on the seventeenth of September, but I can't some of these reports I thought there agents, was an
1: August report you quote from you There know, is there was an August
0: right. report but that we assume that that might be from a, a Hewitt agent but the CIA was very wary about ascribing individual sort of reports to the Hewitt team and of course there's absolutely no guarantee that all of those reports have been released. I suspect they have not.
2: Okay, so Sean, I want to get in a minute to what ends up happening to Tom Hewitt and Mm. Marcus Novo and the other Mm. agents, but before we do that, I think this is a good time to address two big questions. The first one is... Why did it take this long for this information to come out? Almost 60 years before the CIA was willing to confirm the existence of these agents and this operation. And second, but related, is how did you get onto this story?
0: Well, the first part of your question, I think the answer is that initially this was an ongoing human intelligence operation. So at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis and in the immediate aftermath of it, there was no reason to discuss it. And there was plenty of reasons not to. I mean, this was a network of agents that were still sending intelligence back from Cuba and that may or may not be used to help foment rebellion against Fidel Castro. I think that as the years went on, and of course, the United States quickly got caught up then in the wars in Southeast Asia, People just forgot about it. It. It wouldn't have been widespread knowledge even inside the the CIA. I mean, this is a a human intelligence operation.
1: having just listened, uh, re-listened to uh, Kennedy's speech, Mm -hmm. I'm actually old enough to have listened to it Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. I was very young. But one of the things Kennedy says in there that is clearly not true, he makes the point that the U.S. government doesn't seek to overthrow other governments. Mm -hmm. We believe that countries should decide for them themselves, who their rulers are. And clearly there was a big proviso that the U.S. government was not prepared to admit, which is that except in communist nations that we do want to overthrow. So clearly it was in the national interests of this larger lie being told by President Kennedy and the U.S. government to put it all on U-2 spy planes instead of acknowledging the existence of covert agents who were there to overthrow the regime of Fidel Castro. Certainly,
0: yes.
2: You know, one of the things that, I, Sean, I've talked to you about, this story reminds me of the thing that you often hear from the CIA, usually when there's some scandal or some operation Mm. that's gone badly wrong and that's embarrassing to Mm. the CIA, which is, Well, you know, you never hear about our successes. You only hear about our failures. Mm -hmm. And usually we kind of roll our eyes when we hear that cynical Mm -hmm. intel reporters that we are. Mm -hmm. But this is an example of that. I mean, it is quite this was almost a flawless operation, a hugely valuable operation, which the American Mm -hmm. people never heard about. Okay,
0: Sean, how'd you get onto it? I got onto it a long time ago, probably about 13 years ago, if maybe more. You've been
1: sitting on this for 13 years? <laughs> right, I yep. mean, come uh-huh. on. Well,
0: I, I, made, I made a stab at it. Uh, I just want to say it only took him about what, four or five months <laughs> to do it for us. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have waited for thirteen another 13 yeah. years. Yeah. I guess the important thing, and, and we finished the story with this, is that Tom Hewitt was posthumously... Given the CIA's highest award, the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, and the the award ceremony was in January two thousand and five at the CIA's Langley done headquarters. secretly. Yes. Well, it was it was done secretly, but the award itself was not secret. But they didn't publicize it. Right. And you know, I had a sort of knew somebody who was a, a friend of the Hewitt family who'd attended that and told me about it and basically said, you, you should look into this. This is an interesting story. And, you know, I started digging around. It was quickly confirmed. I mean, I had a copy of the citation for Hewitt's award. And which, what does the
1: citation say?
0: What the citation says, and I can read it to you, mm-hmm. it says, in January 1961, Mr. Hewitt joined the Miami station as a paramilitary officer in the Cuban program. Shortly thereafter, he developed and ran one of the most successful operations in the history of the organization. Mr. Hewitt spotted, developed, recruited and provided intensive paramilitary training to a team that was infiltrated into Cuba. It was this team that reported on the presence of nuclear equipment in the Pinar del Rio province of Cuba. Based upon the reporting from Mr. Hewitt's team, U-2 aircraft were dispatched to the region. Their photographs confirmed the presence of nuclear-capable missile equipment. The rest is history, known today as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Public credit for the discovery of the missiles in Cuba was given to the U-2 reconnaissance aircraft in order to preserve the security of the team that Mr. Hewitt created, trained, managed, and motivated through one of the darkest periods of the Cold War. So,
1: wow, it's all right there. Yes. They spell it out. Yes. And how is it that nobody else noticed that?
0: I guess they didn't have the right friends i was fortunate to wait, know so somebody wait, wait, was that
1: there. was that was not a public document
0: no i mean it, it's it's an unclassified document but, was I, but there released? were no there were no press releases about it or but anything the, like that
2: you've had that document for quite for a long yes, time I've but had the issue you. was the reporting that it took to flesh out the yes, story the narrative right. yes
0: it took many months of uh as you are well aware, as as, mm-hmm. the, as the editor waiting for it to put it all together, key was to describing the infiltration, which we do in, in great detail in the story, which, uh, was, was, which is
2: absolutely cinematic. I mean, know. I really encourage people to read the story. It's a very dramatic mm-hmm. beginning of the story.
1: So Sorry. this is a journalistic question here. Uh, you say this was an unclassified document, but it was not a; it had not been made public by mm-hmm. the
0: CIA. Mm-hmm.
1: So how did you get your hands on it?
0: I got my hands on it through my friend who uh, who attended the ceremony and then through the family. At the time that I started digging into this, back in sort of the 2006, 2007, 2008 time frame, I saw, and it was sort of like a labour of love back then. Millie Hewitt, Tom Hewitt's widow, was still alive, and I interviewed her, and some quotes from those interviews are, are in our story. She had a bunch of papers that Tom Hewitt had left behind that al- alluded to this operation. And I was able later on to reach out to Rudy Enders, who's still alive and was eager to help flesh out the story of the infiltration in particular.
1: The fact of Operation Cobra and I should have asked this before, Operation Mongoose was related or separate or succeeded Operation Cobra? I,
0: I think that and it's a good question because, you know, having now amassed a small library of Cuban missile crisis Cobra, books, mongoose. Yeah, yeah they the all are they? Yeah, right. I think, as I understand it, Cobra was sort of a subset of mongoose. Of, of, of
1: the larger yeah. operation yeah. to overthrow the Castro yeah. government. Something that most Americans probably have are unaware of or have forgotten if they knew about it. Very much, all this is very much remembered by the Cubans who you know, have museum dedicated to U.S. government efforts to sabotage their regime. But it is, as I pointed out in the introduction, a little bit relevant now. But wait, uh, Before you white... get to that, I don't know what
2: okay. you're going to say, but, but let's just finish the narrative here, because okay. just on your point about the Cubans and how much they cared about this, what they ultimately rolled up this network, right? What happened to the principal Cuban agent on the ground and to that network?
0: Yes, in the, sort of the spring of 1964, so roughly a year and a half after the missile crisis, the network finally sort of was rolled up by the Cubans. Rudy Enders describes basically the tension between the two missions that this network had. If you set something up for resistance, then you're setting up a wide interconnected network that where the different pieces have to talk to each other and know about each other. If you're setting something up only, uh, a network up only for intelligence, then you're talking small three or four person cells who don't communicate with each other. The fact that this network was so large, and probably not every one of those agents was adhering to the strictest rules of tradecraft that Tom Hewitt would yeah. have w- wanted, meant that eventually the Cubans got onto them and rolled it up So pr- Marcus, pretty quickly. So
2: Marcus Novo wasn't Found until a year and a half after the Q- he was that's, continued to operate for another year and a half. That, that, that is, that's that, fascinating. Yeah, that's correct. And what and, and what happens to him?
0: There are different stories. The most common sort of theme is that he was eventually cornered in a tobacco house in Pinar del Rio province and sort of in a shootout took his own life. In one of Tom Hewitt's papers, Hewitt says that his information was that Marquez Novo was beaten to death by Cuban intelligence. But that may be right, but it may, he, you know, Tom Hewitt may not have had access to all the information that came in once Marquez Novo's family well, sort of came, then, came to America. And
2: then very quickly, how does Tom Hewitt live out the rest of his career at the agency and, and the rest of his life? And then Isakov. I think you have yes. to make a point about the yeah. r- contemporary relevance.
0: Yes. Yeah. So Tom Hewitt, after being stationed in Miami, goes to Laos and is part of the CIA's secret war in Laos, running uh, roadwatch teams of Laotians who were keeping an eye on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Then he does a tour in Vietnam itself, and then he becomes later on the CIA's liaison. To the U.S. Army's John F. Kennedy Center for Special Warfare in Fort Bragg, and he actually helped establish Delta Force in the late 1970s with uh,
2: with the great uh, Charlie Beckwith, controversial Charlie (laughs) Beckwith, and never speaks a word of this operation.
0: No, no, he never. I mean, other than other than to his immediate family, years later, I really was unable to find. Any evidence that Tom Hewitt had talked about this, including one of the sources that we quote in the story, Jack Downing, who was a sort of 30 year friend of the Hewitt family and who presented the posthumous award to Millie Hewitt, Tom's widow, said as he presented it in his speech that in a 30 year or so friendship, Tom Hewitt had never mentioned this operation to him, and that's a guy who held just about every security clearance under the sun.
1: Well, and just back to the point I was I was about to make, which is we are having this discussion at a time on a day that the Trump administration has taken steps to essentially overthrow another leftist regime in South America, the guy, the Madero government in Venezuela, recognizing an opposition leader as the leader of that government. And I have to say there is, at least on the surface, some parallels here. And it does make one wonder how much else there is to the Venezuela story that we're only going to learn about uh, in uh, decades in the future.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly there are parallels. You've got a Moscow client state in Latin America. And we could
1: have a confrontation with the Russians over this if you've seen the latest news out of the Kremlin about uh, how it would be a catastrophe Mm. if the U.S. Mm. government continued to um, uh, delegitimize Madero.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that the two differences are As far as we know, there's been no Russian attempt to install nuclear weapons in Venezuela. And I suspect that the appetite in the United States, maybe not in some parts of the U.S. government, but the appetite among the American people for regime overthrow is probably pretty limited. uh, Well, let's let's all remember that there is a long history of presidents
2: facing scandal and legal problems, trying to distract away from them by getting mixed up in... uh, foreign adventures. So just to bring things back to our usual topic of conversation on on these podcasts, skullduggery, I think we have to be open to that possibility as well. Uh, Sean Naylor, amazing piece of journalism, really changes the way that we look at this crucial piece of our history. And uh, we're really proud to have it on Yahoo News. And uh, thanks for being on uh, Buried Treasure. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks to Sean Naylor for joining us on this episode of Very Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at SkullduggeryPod. Talk to you on Friday.